Welcome to episode 10 of the Through the Point podcast. It's hard to believe I've already made 10 episodes, but it's been more fun than I really even could have imagined, and I want to thank you guys for all the support you've given me so far. It's really motivating to keep doing it, keep making it better, and hopefully keep improving my uh, interviewing skills, so thanks again for that. This week I have on Jeff Gorski, who's had so much involvement in the U.S. Javelin that it's hard for me to pick out the most important thing, but he was a really successful thrower himself at University of North Carolina, but he's gone on to be the USA Development Chair for Javelin, built a training facility of his own, he also created the American Jav Fest, and much, much more. Jeff was awesome uh, and a really funny guy. If it wasn't for him having a meeting scheduled uh, at 5 when we were doing it, it probably would have gone about three hours long, so I'd definitely love to have him on in the future for a follow-up or some type of collaboration episode. As always, please share and subscribe. I have seven five-star reviews on Apple right now, so after this, it'd be great to get it to 10. Uh, So let's make that the goal. All right, enjoy. I'm here with Jeff Gorski, who I don't know, would you say that you're probably involved with the most or have been involved with the most American javelin throwers out of really anyone ever? Is that uh, reasonable to say? It, it might be fair. I think part of that is probably just because I'm old, <laughs> um, you know, but I have I have been lucky to, to have been around a lot of guys. Uh, when I was competing, I was around a lot of the elite throwers at that time. I think when I was competing, there were probably five 90 meter guys in the U.S., uh, I've been able to work with a lot of post-collegiate athletes, and yeah, probably. Yeah, I thought that might be a good intro, just because I was looking at your stuff, and there's so many titles. I'm like, you know what, this guy's just seen a lot of American and, and world javelin, so I figured that's fair enough uh, to introduce you like that. But thank you for coming on. Oh, I appreciate it, man. Anything to promote the sport. Absolutely. That's why I thought you'd be a great guest. So I guess we'll start with how and when were you introduced to javelin? Um. It's, it's a lot of these are going to be relatively sideways stories. I, I started throwing spears when I was a little kid because I was really into all the Hercules movies that came out of Italy in the 60s. So I, would, I grew up in northern New Jersey in a really densely populated area, but the property next door to my yard was an open, it was an open lot. So I would always go over there and, you know, I'm cutting off a hunk of my mom's garden hose. (laughs) This is the dragon that I'm throwing out into the forest and I'm using her broomsticks for a spear. And I'm out there being Hercules or Samson throwing spears at the dragon or killing the dinosaur or something. So I got into throwing sticks and spears just because I was imitating my superheroes at that time. Uh, But I officially got into it. I was introduced to Javelin Javelin. Uh, in junior high, because during the 68 Olympics, uh, our gym teacher did a week of the Olympic track and field events. Mm. Oh, he had, again, it was a broomstick with a metal point on it that was our javelin. Uh, and that was pretty cool. But, you know, I never really got into it until I got to high school because mainly uh, I played baseball up until that time. Uh, I had a hell of an arm. Uh, the last time I played baseball, I was trying to throw a guy out at home plate from the right field fence, and the ball was still going up when it went over the backstop. <laughs> somebody's plate glass window across the street. Uh, and it turned out that the track coach for the high school had a kid playing on the other team, 
and came over to me. And I had an older brother that just graduated that ran hurdles and long jumps. So he knew the family. He, you know, so he came over to me and asked if I was going to play baseball when I got to high school. And I said, I hadn't thought about that. And he said, well, why don't you come see me in the spring and let's see if we can find something for you. So it was in the high school systems uh, in New yeah, Jersey? Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey where they threw in high school. Okay. So then as you were going through high school, what was your uh, what were your results like as you started really formally throwing it and not uh, hunting in the forest next to your house? There you go. Uh, <laughs> my first official throw, and I, I remember this distinctly, throwing, and all, I remember Michael Shuey talking about this javelin. It, it rung a bell. The old skinny blue Nordic <laughs> Viking with the red core grip. I threw that because it was the coolest looking spear. It wobbled in the air like a drunken seagull because, I mean, you know, I'm not hitting the point. This for the sky, 99 feet, eight inches was my first official uh, throw. I ended up throwing like 135 my freshman year. Uh, my sophomore year, I threw like, uh, I think, 162 or 163. My junior year, I threw 181. And then my senior year, I threw 213. Oh, wow. That's a huge jump. Uh, I mean, it was a solid progression always, but I mean, a huge jump between junior and senior year. Well, at the end of my junior year, I realized, like, I played uh, – most people say they played football and basketball. I was on the team. I really didn't play, like, unless we were up 20 in football or down 20, which was the case. We were 0-8-1 my junior year. <laughs> uh, and the game we tied, we were up 21-zip going into the last four minutes. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, we were off. Uh, and in basketball – I was the I was the backup center at six foot tall. You could tell how bad we were. Gonna be. Um, so and and to his credit, the guy that was the head basketball coach was the throwing events coach on a track team. And after the season was over, he called me over and said, "Look, Jeff, you know, let's be honest. If you come out for the basketball team, you'll probably make it next year, and you'll probably play about as much as you did this past year." He said, "You kind of have a talent for throwing things. Maybe you should think about." spending your senior year focusing on that. And I already knew that I wasn't going to go out for football my senior year. Mm. And that kind of pushed me over the edge to give up basketball as well and just throw the shot indoors. So literally my senior year, I trained year-round for throwing the javelin. I had all kinds of – I lived in the coach's office and got every magazine that had anything to do with Javelin that I could get my hands on. I still have photocopies of a lot of that stuff from high school in my files. And I just kind of figured out a way to map out a program. I, I saw articles about the way the Finns trained year round. And I kind of figured out a way to emulate that as much as I could, given the resources that I had. Right. Yeah. Being in the high school, I'm sure you didn't have exactly what they had over there, but being able to make it work, uh, obviously paid dividends going from 181 to 213 in a year. Yeah, it was, I had, you know, I really, I really focused on it. Uh, and it, I developed late as an athlete, maybe because that I finally found my specialization later on in life. And, and it was a real passion, man. I really, I was like, okay, I didn't go to my high school prom because we had a big meet the next day. Also, the reason I didn't go to the high school prom, because I knew when I was a sophomore in high school, I was never going to have anything to do with northern New Jersey. So wasting the money on a prom and any of that, because these are people I was never, ever going to see the rest of my life. <laughs> so it was pretty easy for me to kind of self-isolate and just work on throwing the javelin. 
And to the coaching staff's credit, they would give me times when I could get into the gym and throw a ball against a wall or hang up a net. And I, I, I put metal um, flanges on a javelin. and I got, got a way to hang a, a baseball net or backstop net from the rafters in the gym so I could actually throw a javelin into a net indoors on the basketball court. You know, these guys helped me a lot because they saw that I was really into it. Mm -hmm. And that's a similar story I had with my coach uh, at the small school I was at last year was he was just trying to do anything uh, to help me get resources because he knew how much I cared about it and had that uh, similar passion to you that we, we, Build, built a net out of I don't know whatever it didn't even end up working but we at least had the effort to go in there and like tie a net together with like zip ties and different things like that and try and make it work so I definitely share that but that's awesome even back then that you were able to put that in and have an obviously successful senior year it worked out okay what so what year did you graduate high school uh, my senior year was 73 and okay. 213 throw probably did not put me on the top 30 list in the U.S. For I was high like, school or for just all? I was only like 10th or 11th in New Jersey on the performance list. Really? Oh, it was, I mean, New Jersey, New Jersey was loaded that year. In or, uh, most of the 70s, they were, let me, let me put it this way. My county meet, my county meet, it took 59 feet to make the top six in the shot. It took 182 to make the top six in the discus. It took 185 to take make the sixth place in the javelin. This is the county meet. Yeah, that, that's not even moving on. That's insane. I did not know uh, that it was that pow much of a powerhouse for javelin. Oh, it, I mean, it, it, that was an exceptional year. But, I mean, there were – I think we had four guys over 225 that year. You know, I, th I threw the 213 – at the meet of champions, the last high school meet of my career, I had a 10 foot PR. Oh, wow. You know, so it was, you know, it, it was a, a big meet and I got an opportunity and it was the last throw and it, it, they were only taking six people to the final at the state meet. Um, and it, this was actually in New Jersey, they, they call it the meet of champions. So you had four school groups in the public schools and then two private school groups and the meet of champions was the top five finishers in each of those groups. So every event had a field of 30. And they only, because they ran the meet at Rutgers uh, University, and that time Rutgers only had six lanes on their track, so they only took six people to the final mm. in event. So I had to throw a, – a guy threw 212 and didn't make it to the finals. That's insane, especially in the high school level. Yeah, it was a, it it was a it was a big it was big time track and field up there for sure. One one thing I'm interested in is in 1973. What was the coaching yourself like? Obviously, there wasn't much video, if at all, or like things like that. What was making those adjustments? Because I'm someone who's really records myself a lot. Because a lot of times I'm at the track alone and tries to look at it or watch other people's video. What was like? What was that like? Uh, like I said, I read, I read a lot. I, I photocopied articles and, and found chapters in books. Uh, and I was lucky to have a really supportive dad. And this, it, it was, it was kind of interesting because when I told him in August and I'm the youngest of four boys, my older brothers were all star athletes. They all, they all starred in baseball and football and basketball. Um, and my, and I was physically the biggest of all of them. So my dad figured, you know, I'm going to be the star of stars. And I told him my son, the 
August of my senior year, hey, I'm not going to go out for football or basketball. I'm just going <laughs> to train for javelin. And, like, he didn't talk to me for two months, <laughs> especially the basketball part because he grew up – he and Rick Barry's father were best men at each, other, each other's weddings. My dad is Rick Barry's godfather, and Rick Barry's dad is my oldest dad's brother's godfather. So basketball was always a huge deal to my dad. So when I told him not, I'm not playing hoops either, he's like, he's devastated. Oh, yeah, I bet. But then, you know, he, he came around to seeing how dedicated I was to it. And he would come to practices when he could, and he'd come to the meets, and he had a, a Super 8 camera. So he filmed me at times. So I got to, you know, get the film, send it out, wait two weeks for the film to come back and put it on the right. you know. But I got to see some film, and, and we bought film that was available uh, of world-class athletes. Like, I grew up idolizing Giannis Lucis, who unfortunately just passed away. Right. Uh, but he was the guy that was my idol. I couldn't throw exactly like him, but there were aspects of his throw that I tried to copy. Um, and one of those booklets that articles that uh, the coaching staff had was literally a uh, – there was a magazine, now it's called Track Coach. It used to be called Track Technique. Uh, and it was literally one at one volume was dedicated to a translation of a Russian training manual of Giannis Lucis's training. Oh, that's awesome. That and I'm like, okay, can I do this? Can I figure out a way to do this? So, you know, and I'm, you know, the 18, 17 year old knucklehead. I don't realize that this is a training program from a guy who's been training at a high level <laughs> right. years. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to make this work? But right. <laughs> it kind of gave me – it was a compass. It pointed me in the right direction. Absolutely. That's got to be like hitting the gold mine at that point and seeing your favorite thrower getting that manual translated for you. That's awesome. Oh, hell, and then a year later, I got to meet him. Really? After my freshman year at UNC, the, the US, US, USSR dual meet was at Duke. He was throwing. I got to meet the guy, and I'm sitting in the stands with him asking him every freaking question I can think of for four hours. And he's just the perfect gentleman answering the questions as best he can. I'm, I'm surprised the KGB didn't come and call my ass away. Because, man, this is 1974. This is the middle of the Cold War. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it's, it's so here I am after a couple of years of, like, trying to figure out how to train the way this guy did. I'm sitting in the stands with him talking javelin as best I can and then flash forward 25 years later when I go to the javelin carnival in Finland for the first time he's there I go to, to reintroduce myself to him and he says oh yes the young man in North Carolina with so many questions <laughs> that's great that's great I'm glad to hear that he was like you said the perfect gentleman our gentleman respected your questions but that's I'm oh, sure he, and, he, yeah I, I wish I was old enough to ask follow-ups. You know, I mean, I listened to a lot of what he said, but when I asked about weightlifting, uh, he said, well, the work with the weights is important. And I didn't ask a follow-up. <laughs> I went to the gym and got crazy strong because at that point I'd thrown almost 70 meters. I couldn't bench my body weight on a good day. I could, I could squat a hundred kilos three times, but I had a feel and I know how to throw, throw mm. and I, connect my rhythm and then I got crazy strong and it I spent so much energy getting strong 
I lost the feel for the throw. Right. So my sophomore year, when I could like literally topple buildings because I was so strong, I had like a, a 375 hang clean. I could jerk more than I can clean. So I'm jerking 425 off a rack. I'm squatting probably over 500 pounds. I had a th- one, one throw that whole season over 60 meters. Because over 60, wow. One th- because I just got, I, I got really strong, took a lot of energy and recovery time from getting strong and spending that much time in the, in the gym. So I lost my feel and the time to be able to throw. So what I was doing wrong got magnified by how much stronger I got. So I just right. my mistakes better. And the few things that I did well got overpowered by the mistakes. Right. And I think that's obviously this isn't necessarily a training podcast, but that's a, and been something a lot of people have echoed on here is not that you don't want to be strong, but there's just a balance between how you train for javelin and how you train for the, especially the other throwing events. But that's yeah, a gotta, little bit. You, yeah. you got to be strong for throwing the javelin. Exactly. Throwing the javelin, you're strong for doing a lot of things, but I got, I fell into the trap of if I get really strong, it's going to carry over the javelin. And right. It, it didn't. And a lot of time I, I've learned in my coaching, it sure doesn't. Yeah. So you end, like you said, you ended up going to North Carolina where you were a three time all ACC performer. Do you want to just touch on your college career? And I guess the main points of that. Um, really good competitive conference. Uh, at that time there were no scholarship limits. Um, so if you had the money to put into a program, you could and and Maryland at that time was a freaking powerhouse. They had, my freshman year, Maryland had four guys throwing over 220 in the javelin. And, you know, and because they're University of Maryland, they're pulling kids out of both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So there was always real good competition from the guys at Maryland. Clemson started coming up while I was in school. They recruited a guy. They got a kid that came in uh, when I was a sophomore. He threw 236 in high school. Oh, uh, wow. You know, and then he came in. so he was the guy to kind of deal with uh, along with the guys from Maryland. So there was, and there was a a couple of good guys at NC state. So in the conference, there were probably four or five 70 meter guys, including myself or better. Uh, So it was, there was pretty good competition. And when we went to other meets, you know, went to the pen relays and I'm seeing guys throwing 270, 275 and like this, this is up until this time before I, I met Lucis. These are like the longest throws I've ever seen in person. Right. So I got to see some pretty impressive stuff. Um, I had, I was, you know, I was, I was the semi big fish in a medium sized pond. <laughs> I was pretty good. I was pretty good regionally. I did much better throwing when I got out of college than I did when I was in college. Okay. Cause I learned better how to train and I learned better how to, applied de- good technique. Let's talk about then, uh, what was your post-collegiate career like then? Because I didn't see much stuff online. It was hard for me to find that, but I guess you Yeah, I, threw, I, I had, uh, I graduated in 78, uh, and then I had two years of throwing post-collegiately that were atrocious. I mean, I just, I was trying to work. We, initially, the first year, we were living in Miami, and it was hard to find a place to train, and, and it was just... I had two years where I was relatively fit and I was still making the same technical mistakes that I was making in college where I was just pausing on my back leg too long 
and losing the point of the javelin and, and just having a horrible place. In 1980, I went, I threw in a couple of local meets. We had moved back to North Carolina. I threw in a couple of regional meets uh, and did pretty well. And then I took a month to really train. I'm going, you know, we're going to go to a big meet in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm going to throw the qualifying mark for the Olympic trials there. I don't, I don't think I threw as far as I did my junior year in high school at that meet. <laughs> and I'm driving back from this meet, and I'm seriously thinking, you know, am I going to pull off on the side of the road and throw all my javelin stuff into the French <laughs> River and hang it up? And, yeah, I mean, it was, it was that much of, of a moment for me because I was just devastated with how poorly I performed and how poorly I handled the situation. And I kind of said, well, you know, Suck it up. Let's see what you can do one more year. Uh, and then I started looking at film of really good throwers. I, I, I went Sherlock Holmes and said, you know, I'm going to figure out what these guys that are my size, six foot, 190 pounds, why are these guys throwing 280, 290, over 300, and I'm struggling to throw 240 on a good day? And I found some commonalities between all of them. And the biggest thing was a lack of deviation in their center of gravity. They kept their waist moving relatively level all the way into the block. And there was a smooth acceleration of their tempo into the, into the block. So figuring out how to make myself do that gave me pretty much of a, a 20 to 25 foot on average improvement on my throws. Just I learned how to get into a better position and use my legs better. Right. I had horrendous point control. I never learned about hitting the point of the javelin, which I overemphasize now because that was my big mistake. Because if, if, uh, if you see that black and white picture of me on the front page of my website, yeah, it's like at almost 90 degrees. <laughs> hand. That was a 78-meter throw. Oh, and wow. <laughs> and I tombstoned it. I, you know, it was old rules javelin, so it stalled. Oh, and, yeah. And the, the angle that it was leaving my hand at is about the angle it landed at. <laughs> so, you know, if it was a new rules javelin, just because of the drag on the tail and it kind of fixes itself, it would have been well over 80 meters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because had to generate hand speed and power. I just didn't apply it correctly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's insane to have that big of a jump the 20 to 25 feet later in the career. But I think also the side note, there's a lot of good throwers that are about six foot one ninety. speaking of uh, people out there. So uh, you don't necessarily have to be the biggest person to be the best thrower, but uh, going off of that. Yeah. That's just having that jump later on and figuring out those commonalities and studying the video, not necessarily copying it, but seeing what are all the best people doing is something I think a lot of people at least, at least are trying to do with YouTube now. Yeah, and that's and, and it's understanding there there's three or four basic things that have to happen in all the throwing events, you know, it's release velocity, the angle of the implement, the height that it comes off the ground, but but seeing how each of these unique individuals with their own unique style did those basic fundamental things and seeing okay Central gravity is not moving. It's, everything is horizontal. There's not a roller coaster in this guy's waist as he's coming down the steps. Point of the javelin is staying by his eyes, uh, so the angle as they come into the throw is going to stay consistent. Seeing that and then figuring out how to make it work for me was huge. 
the the one mistake that I made, and I I got corrected on this when I went to Finland, was still the old ball throwing mentality of using the free arm really aggressively to open the chest into the throw, and doing that is what made me lose the point of the javelin. You look at earlier still pictures. I'm coming in at the crossover, man. The point of the javelin is right there by my eyebrow where it's supposed to be. But when I landed on the back foot and started coming to the block, I'm using the free arm to open my chest. And what I was doing was pulling myself away from the javelin and pulling down on the tail. So the, the more I got into the throw, the more I pulled my free arm and the more I'd lost the point of the javelin. And then when I went to Finland, this is get a little bit ahead of, you know, international story, but <laughs> first time that I went to Finland, this was when I had just been selected as the development chair for USA track and field. And the first night there, they have uh, a, a semi-elaborate opening ceremony. Uh, and then everybody goes out to the disco and listens to bad music and dances and drinks. Uh, and then we come back, it's about two o'clock in the morning. Um, and here's Uwe Hahn, Giannis Lucis, Essa Utrianen, Jorma Marcos, uh, Kari Ihlein. He was only an 87 meter guy. Uh, but I mean, here's like five or six 90 meter throwers or better. And we're, and we're walking there, we're staying in the same little hunting lodge. And they said, Jeff, where are you going? I said, no, nah, I'm, man, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. He said, no, no, no. Now we do important things. All these guys pulled out a bottle of vodka and slammed it on the table. Now <laughs> javelin and we drink. So, you know, I'm Polish. I'm going to hold my own with these guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm drinking a little bit. And they, and they come around and say, Jeff, you are, you are new national javelin coach in the U.S. You tell me your idea of perfect technique. Um, and my old man was a wedding singer and I used to watch him do his show. So I kind of learned, you know, how to watch a crowd and play off the crowd and, and, and see if I'm going in the right direction. So <laughs> right. talking about, you know, the run up and the withdrawal and they're, you know, nodding their head. Yes, yes. Very good. Very good. You know, get into the big jump into the crossover, increase torque, really get off that back leg cover ground. Everything is level to the ground. Yes, yes. Good. We like, we like, and then, you know, you come in, you hit the block. And you start yanking this free arm, there's crap flying through the air. I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> this is important. Uh, and and they all obviously the pulling the arm down is is a huge mistake in all of their eyes. And to their credit, every one of those guys made a special point over the next four days to come over and spend 10 or 15 minutes with me explaining to me their idea of what you do with the free arm. And all of the ideas were almost identical. They all had just different ways of phrasing it. Right. Which so, I think is, yeah, go ahead. And it, it was, that, that was one of the big moments in my javelin career as a coach in learning, you know, and, and then I, and I immediately felt bad at the people that I coached for five or six years prior. <laughs> yanked the hell out of that arm to the side. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I wanted to go on to next is like you said you skipped a little bit but it's a good story so I, i'm fine with that but how did you get started in coaching and like what was the transition from being an athlete to then being a coach um a little bit was because when i came in at unc i was the best javelin thrower they had um and i was the guys that were there i was kind of helping them along um 
And then I'd go to meets and I was the best thrower there, you know, especially when I got out of college. So guys would come over and ask for tips or ask for advice. So, you know, I'd always been kind of free with, with sharing ideas or information that I had. Um, and I, and then in 81, when I had that, when I had my kind of breakout year where I threw well and, and made the finals at USA's the first time, um, my head coach at UNC was retiring and they had just signed a really talented high school kid. Weird combination too. The kid ran through 227 in the javelin and ran 158 in the 800. <laughs> that is and, a weird combination. And he was 6'4", 230. Oh my gosh. Just crazy. <laughs> but, you know, this kid is coming in and the new head coach was the assistant coach when I was there, said, look, we got this talented guy you know, can you come up to Chapel Hill a couple of times a week and do your workouts and work with him and help him out? Uh, so that, you know, a little bit more regular coaching there. And at the time I was teaching school and, and coaching, you know, at a junior high. So I, went, I, I got my degree in physical education, so I was going to be a coach regardless. That was right. destined. Uh, but getting it to work with javelin throwers. And then literally the next year they offered me, cause I was just volunteer. I was coming up on my own. And then the next year they asked me to come up and be a part-time assistant. And they were going to pay me. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm getting paid to coach you. So it just took off from there. Right. Yeah. You're doing it for free. Obviously then they put some money on the table and it just sweetens the pot a little bit. Oh yeah. And get to move back to Chapel Hill. Holy crow. It was just, it was <laughs> What would you say are some of the challenges or differences from being a coach compared to uh, competing as an athlete in the javelin? Um, I think that for a lot, I know it was for me, and I think that for a lot of successful or semi-successful athletes that get into coaching is realizing that the exact things that work for you as an athlete may not be the exact things that work for your athletes. There's generalizations like we talked about before, but, you know, the way I did my crossover, the way I pointed my foot, the way I carried my free arm, what I did that worked for me may not be what works for this 45-meter young lady that I'm working with. Right. The concepts of not slowing down, of keeping the center of gravity, moving without a lot of vertical deviation, the delay of the arm, so that's the last thing to come through, that big elastic reflex action. Those are all constants, but you have to figure out the way that their abilities can be tapped into to make that happen. And the first couple of years, it was just, you know, I can't understand how you can't do it this way because it works for me. Right. You just got to kind of get through that and it's, man, it's trial and error. You know, it's like, it's not as intense, but it's a lot like being a parent the first time, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just winging it, but I hope I'm, you know, we're going in the right direction. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one thing uh, that, I mean, I don't have obviously near the coaching experience you have. I've worked with a few people, but there's just, like you said, there's things that need to be done, but what they need to hear to get to that point is a lot of times different than what you feel or what it takes for you to do it. So I think, like if I was going to guess what you would say, that's what I would uh, get. So I guess uh, you were right on with that. And, and, and part of it also, also is as you gain experience, you learn how to describe the same physical movement in a lot of different ways. I had a, a brilliant, brilliant javelin guy 
Uh, Bill Miller, silver medalist at the 52 Olympics. Uh, I got to meet him and spend time with him. And he told me that, and this stuck me with me like glue. He said, the words that you select have real impact and very, very big meaning. For example, he said, as a coach, you should never say don't do something because don't draws attention to the negative aspect that you want to avoid. Right. So I'll tell a kid, don't, don't pause on your back foot. They're going to pause to make sure they're not pausing. <laughs> yeah. As a parent, it's like I do. If I, if I told my daughter, don't eat those cookies before dinner, I'm going to turn around. She's going to be elbow deep in the cookie jar because right. I brought attention to something that she wasn't thinking about. So you learn to divert the attention to the desired effect as opposed to don't pause on your back leg. Get to your block faster. Right. You know, and or 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 a different phrase, you know, let your butt move with your front foot. You know, don't uh, I, I use a, you probably figured out by now. I use a lot of verbal analogies that elicit an image. So I'll tell if I if I see a kid is really having trouble with pausing on their back foot. Um, I'll find out, you know, do you do you like to learn from looking at a picture, having an image or having it intellectually explained to it. And the vast majority of people are visual imagery kind of learners. Mm -hmm. I said, imagine the runway is covered in toilet paper. And when your back foot hits, you don't want to tear the toilet paper. You want to tear the crap out of it when your block foot hits. And you want to tear the crap out of it when you're taken off in that last crossover. But when that back foot lands on the ground, all you want to leave is pinholes from your spikes. Right. And, and, you know, an idea like that clicks with people or, or you know, I'll, I'll, I'll invent a lot of drills to get an activity that I want, but it also avoids the negative. It's always accentuating the positive impact that we're trying to generate. That's funny that you said uh, that elicits an image because I could literally feel what that is, the landing on the toilet or tissue paper and not trying to rip it. That's uh, an interesting analogy I'd never heard of, but that's the type of thing uh, that I think is effective, at least for me. And I, I'm visual too, but things like that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense or just trying to think about it different ways. So very, very I used, interesting. I used insight. to talk about walking on thin ice, but down in the South. <laughs> they have no clue what that is. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is pointless, brother. <laughs> Uh, so you said at the time there was a lot of successful javelin throwers in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and everything uh, in that area. What would you say is like the difference or the change in the U.S. high school system of javelin from when you were in high school to how it is now? Um, there's obviously, for good and bad, a lot of information on the Internet. Um, there's a lot of bad information there. You have to, I think people need to have a filter of some kind and I'm not quite sure how that happens, but you, uh, maybe it's, you do Google search on the actual person who's putting up this information and see, have they been a successful coach? Uh, but the, the access to good information is, is light years ahead. And I think also the advent of a lot of programs uh, certainly the one that National Scholastic asked me to start uh, back in, in 2010, uh, where it was a traveling circus of doing clinics and camps where you have knowledgeable coaches that know how to teach the event 
speaking to the masses, having clinics where you have kids coming. And that was when they asked me to come and do that, that was kind of a natural extension of what I had been doing for six or seven years before that, where I kind of, I'd gotten to the point where I'd set up a network of maybe eight or 10 places around the country where I could go, you know, I'm in Kansas this month. I'm in Oregon this month. I'm in Louisiana this month. I'm in Pennsylvania this doing clinics where we'd get, you know, anywhere from 50 to a hundred people that would show up for a javelin clinic. So we're able to get good information out to people. Uh, and then when it, it became the NSAF uh, funding this, it was just, you know, a much bigger paycheck. So, you know, or a bigger, che- a bigger checkbook to be able to do it on a higher end, a little bit more elaborate, more staff, be able to pay them better. So there's been a lot of opportunities for young, talented, either high school kids college athletes or even post-collegiate athletes to find information. It's just, you have to be able to trust the information that you're getting, but there's God, you know, I mean, if I was a high school kid these days, my God, it would, it would have been so much easier to, to achieve a higher level of success just because there would have been a lot of guys like me that would have put out information that's more, making sure you don't make the mistakes that we made as to, you know, these are the basic things that you have to spend time in. And there's a high correlation between if I spend time doing this, it's going to make me a better javelin thrower. Whereas early in my career was, I was doing a whole lot of this, but there's very little correlation in helping me throw farther. Right. And I think that's why I wanted to ask earlier about how, if there was any video or something for you is how important that's been to me as I'm a new uh, javelin thrower that's been so important so I can't even imagine trying to learn it without looking at what I'm doing or looking at what other people are doing obviously you had a little access but not not nearly at, uh, at your fingertips I guess waiting the two weeks for the film uh, to get developed oh yeah I mean I remember going like I said my older brother um, he went to UConn and played football and ran hurdles there uh, and I remember they had a dual meet at Columbia in New York City and my dad and I went there because we wanted to see my brother run. But, you know, I wanted to see the college javelin throwers throw. I mean, you know, I'm maybe a 140, 150 guy at this time. And I remember seeing this guy apologize for my big mouth dog. <laughs> That's okay. Ruby, hush. I remember seeing this guy. He was a defensive end on the football team. And he's throwing 185 feet. I'm like, my God. That's just incredible. You know? And then I look back at Jesus, God, you know, this, this goofball, I mean, he's, he's doing, I, I still remember a still picture that I had of him, and it looked like a guy getting ready to do a cartwheel. Legs are straight, arms are out like a big, <laughs> one of the javelins about four feet over his head. I mean, every conceivable thing that you could do wrong, he's doing wrong. And at the time, I'm like, this is great. This is what I need to be doing. You know, <laughs> you, you evolve in, in, in finding your sources of information after, you know, the next year, I'm looking at the magazines in the coach's office and I say, well, you know, what Ralph was doing in that picture is not exactly what I, I think I want to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. At the time, were there, or was Javelin in more high schools as a high school sport or more states, I mean, compared to now, or how has that been? Oh, no, there's in, in the last, let's see, in the last 20 years, one, two, three, Four or five states have added the javelin to their high school programs. Uh, you, you, um, because the first one, because I helped a lot of the states, they got in contact with me simply because one of my old professors at UNC 
ran for the NCAA and the NS, uh, the National Scholastic, the High School Federation, mm. uh, ran studies on catastrophic injuries. He was one of the first guys that started making recommendations on how to redesign football helmets. Okay. I knew this guy for, like I said, he was one of my professors. So in 2002, I was down in Alabama doing a clinic, uh, and they were getting ready to, they were going to add, they were talking about adding the turbo jab as an event for high school with the idea of after two years of the turbo switching to the actual rubber, rubber tip jab. Uh, and then a bunch of the coaches from Alabama came to me and said, well, you know, what would it take to, or, or we'd really like to just go right to the javelin. But the big concerns that a lot of people have is safety. And I said, right. I know the guy to talk to. So I went to my professor and Liam touched on this because a lot of that information is what he used in his presentation to South Carolina High School Federation. So this professor did a study of reported javelin injuries in high schools and NCAA Division One, Two, II, and Three, uh, from 1982 to 2000, and we conservatively estimated that only 80% of the schools would have any javelin throwers, and out of that 80%, they only had one boy and one girl each. So we really restricted the numbers, and it still came out to there were five reported injuries out right. of what turned out to be like 190,000 potential uh, 190,000 athletes there were five reported injuries no fatalities so the Alabama Federation looked at this and you know and he had corresponding statistics for this same per capita number there are like eight fatalities in cheerleading there's 20 fatalities in cross country there's 112 fatalities in baseball you know so it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna have a sport that's safe this is one of the ones to do it right Alabama immediately adopted the rubber tip javelin in 2002. And then a couple other states, Arizona added it. Um, South Carolina just added it. Florida is adding it. Uh, so, you know, because of good information and people realize it, basically in order to be dangerous to, to, with the javelin, you've got to throw it far enough to surprise somebody. <laughs> yeah. Not that far. You've been around long enough to oh, to see the knucklehead walking his dog without looking and know to wait for the guy to clear the field. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think like like you were saying and touching on the other sports, especially something like football, it's not it, it javelin just seems dangerous because it's so obvious that it's dangerous. It's a sharp stick and it goes somewhere. Oh, yeah, so it's a like, weapon of war. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's clear that people are gonna think it's dangerous if you don't know much, but in terms of like numbers because I, I wrote not as nearly as extensive as Liam but I had just like a thing for a journalism class where I, that was kind of what I touched on and it was like yeah in the same amount of time as there were like I don't know how many deaths of it was all throwing events too not even just javelin it was like four in the 25 years and in one year of football it was like 80 or something like that yeah, it was just like, I mean there was I, and uh and when you were talking with Liam again I remember you know the, the idea of the other implements came up there was I can't remember it was either the late 90s maybe early 90s uh there was an official at the NCAA championship meet who got killed because he got hit in the head with a shot yeah oh, this it, it's it's more often the the bizarre consequence the the bizarre situation that causes an accident like that because it was a qualify it was warm-ups between flights 
and the official was standing in the landing area and he was watching heats the 800 and you know so it was just bad bad place to be watching something and not paying attention to what you're supposed to be doing but the injuries in the javelin and actually three of the five, or two of the five were not even in competition it was one guy was walking back uh throwing the javelin to the ground as he was walking back to the starting line or to the runway and he walked into the tail of the javelin inadvertently right it, it, you know they just said it was only there were only actually three and obviously this was five reported injuries you know there's probably people that got hit and you know the the trainer put a band-aid on it or something but you know it's it's like i said in order to be dangerous you got to be able to throw it far enough to surprise somebody yeah that's a good way to describe it which is i guess obviously you don't want to injure one that's a good problem to have though when you're uh throwing far enough to do that but I want to go back and backtrack a little bit. I didn't touch on it, unfortunately. Club Kihas, is that how I say it? Yeah. Kihas, like, word for javelin. That's what I've read on your website. Yeah, I didn't know that until I just looked the other day doing the research for this. But where did the idea come from that, and how how did that go? And I know you have something. Is it your backyard where there's stuff? Built? Yeah, I've got – well, when we moved here, uh, I'm still hauling around to set in this – I mean – we could easily do part two on stories. I'm <laughs> a set of Olympic weights that I took from my senior year in college here because we had a strength and conditioning coach who only used Nautilus machines. And I showed him my training log of my improvements in Olympic lifts and my, you know, so long story short, he gave me the Olympic weights so I would leave him alone. Uh, and when we moved here to Chapel Hill and, and got our house, I built a little gym so I had a place to lift. So there's always been a place initially it was just for me to work out. Um, and then in my last year coaching at UNC until I came back a couple of years ago was 1991. So I started working with high school people and post-collegiate people. And for a couple of years, we were still able to go and use university facilities. Uh, and then things started to clamp down. Um, and it turned out that the son of my college coach has a whole bunch of land in the next county. And he said, you know, and there was actually an article in the newspaper about, you know, here's these Olympic hopeful javelin throwers looking for a place to train because uh, we were getting run off of the, the university facilities. And he said, you know, I got a field out here. You can put it in a runway. You guys can train out here. Uh, and then I kept expanding on that and adding things at my house because now I'm getting high school kids I'm having people come from other states, in some cases other countries, come spend a week or two working with me. So having a weight room to myself where we can do stuff like that. Uh, the weight room is part of a, of a two-story building that's got a cinder block wall. So I built a, a deck to throw med balls and weighted balls against that. Uh, I built a short runway with a net so that you know we can do – so it was just kind of me having my – my place to play for myself and then as i got older and i'm i'm training less seriously for javelin and just staying fit um having that opportunity in those places for the people that i'm coaching and then in and then I, like i told you before i was taking the road show or i was going around because i had a little bit of a reputation and we were able mm -hmm. to in the country and put on clinics and have people like duncan atwood and barry Cromis work with me and, and do these things um, and really, man, I just, I had it set up to where I was going to have a nice little business going around 
once a month, eight or nine, 10 places a year. Uh, and then unfortunately in 2003, my wife was in an accident and it rendered her a quadriplegic. Uh, so I immediately just became, you know, her primary caregiver. Right. And li- uh, dude, literally, she's still in the hospital. She can barely move her mouth. She said, I'm not going to let you quit coaching. And it was her idea to start the Field of Dreams camp. She said, you know, well, you're going to see these people and they know you're a good coach. If you're that good, they'll come here to see you. Uh, so I was able to start doing events and, and, and I, again, expand the facilities so that I could handle, you know, eight or 10 or 12 or 20 people to come in and do a training camp over a three or four day stretch. Um, so that became kind of the impetus of making sure that I had all these facilities so that I could do anything that we needed to do to train a javelin throw thrower and never have to set on university property. So there were never liability insurance issues. Right. That, that definitely makes sense. I'm sorry to hear that, but that's an awesome story of how, how it came to be. And I've seen, like I said earlier, I don't know if it was on the interview or before that I've watched just about all of your YouTube videos. So I, I have a general idea of what I think the layout would look like, but it's awesome to have that near you uh, and able to train and take care of whatever you need uh, right on, right on campus or right on your campus. <laughs> yeah. It's a blast. How now this is another interesting thing uh, with you that you were the coach of Tom Puxtis. How did you get introduced to Tom and how did that relationship go? Obviously he had a ton of success, but uh, how did that start? Uh, I initially met Tom when he was throwing at Florida and I was coaching in North Carolina. Um, and we had gone to, I get he, Tom knew of me. Um, and we had a, a three-way meet with university of Kansas, university of Florida and North Carolina down in Gainesville. Uh, and I had videotaped the, the meet, uh, and he, came over to the hotel room because he wanted to look at the video and go over the video of him throwing with me, you know, with us talking about it. Uh, and that was 90, 91 or 90. I think it was 90. Um, and then the next year he was, he didn't throw that well at NCAAs because he was hurt with his elbow, but we kind of knew each other. And then we really got to know each other when I started coaching Linda Lipson, now Blue Trick, Ryan Blue Trick's wife, who's the throws coach at Arizona State. Uh, I was coaching her post-collegiately and she was doing really well. At, at, uh, then it was now it had become USATF. Uh, she made a couple of national teams before the, the, uh, 96 Olympic trials. So he had seen me, he knew of me and it was right after it was either right after the trials in 96 or during the trials in 96, he approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to work with him. Uh, and he was living, I think in Baton Rouge at the time. So I'd go to Louisiana, uh, once every couple of weeks or once every month or month and a half, or he'd come up to Chapel Hill. So we just kind of bounced around back and forth. Uh, through those couple of years that we worked together. Okay. And then were you with him on any, like, I don't even know how the Olympic system works. Were you with him for those type of experiences or how? Oh, no, I, I, I would have loved to when he threw, I was, uh, I was coaching him when he threw in Atlanta and threw really well and made the finals in a really tight competition. But at that time uh, we were in New Jersey because it was my parent. It was my dad's 70th birthday. Oh, okay. <laughs> had to be, and I had to be in New Jersey instead of the Olympics 
uh, to celebrate my dad's birthday. Uh, and there were a couple of times that I was hoping that I was going to be able to go to Europe with him for a couple of meets, uh, but just things just didn't work out where, so other than at the trials and at USA's, we never really got a chance to be at any competitions together. Wow. That is really surprising because I'd worked with Tom before and he'd talked about how he worked with you. Uh, and I guess I didn't know what, how much of the relationship was, but that's really surprising that it ended up being that way. But I guess, yeah, that's which, you know, like then. I said, when he, when he lived in Baton Rouge, I probably went down there maybe two or three times before the season started. And then he would go off to Europe and throw in a couple of meets. He'd come back to the States and either he'd come to Chapel Hill and we'd work, you know, spend a couple of sessions together or I'd go down to Baton Rouge and then he'd go back over to Europe and throw some meets. Uh, so it was, you know, when he needed me, I was available and it right. was, he really knew a lot. They, there wasn't that much in honesty that I taught him other than helped him get into his block quicker and get more out of his block and consequently get more into the javelin. But, you know, when you're an 83 meter thrower and you find that that takes you 85 and to 87. So, right. oh, I mean that, that, that he made four three or four or five meter improvement when he's already a world-class level you know i'm i'm pretty happy about that oh absolutely uh, nothing to hang your head on and that he <laughs> and that he found the way to find those big throws at big meets was was really gratifying you know but it was it was a relatively simple thing that he just needed to think about it a different way and when he found it he said you know crap this is so easy you know, as long as I'm in the right frame of mind, I can, I can do this. And that was, you know, it was, it was the soft step stuff, you know, learn, learning how not to slow down coming over your right into your block. Right. But in the way for him to think about and implement it. So it was second nature was the deal. Yeah, absolutely. Like you it said. wasn't like I had to be there, you know, for everything. It's, uh, I, I, I tell everybody that I coach, if I do my job right, you shouldn't need me after a period of time. But you've learned the right stuff and it's so ingrained and it's so natural. I'm just a cheerleader. <laughs> like you said, as someone is already at 83 meters, he's already doing a lot of things right. So there's, yeah. there's things you have to change. It's like if he gets that change, I guess, then he's good to go. You know, it's, it's, it's that 12-cylinder sports car, man. You just got a little clogged up spark plug, man, if that's all I've done. It makes the car go great, <laughs> but it, but it, it's also knowing which spark plug to clean. Oh, absolutely. Cause there's a lot of things that could go wrong when you're doing that. Uh, or you're throwing 83 meters. It's pretty easy to not be throwing 83 meters if things start going wrong. Yeah. What, uh, in the interest of time, cause you have a meeting coming up, I guess I'll go with like two more questions. I want to touch on outside of Finland. Talk about one other of your favorite or most interesting international experiences. <sighs> Honestly, I mean, it, going to Finland twice were, were, other than in college, we had a meet in Mexico City, which was a trip because we stayed at the Olympic Village. Oh, and, wow. And, and which, which, so this was six years. This is 74. Um, and, or 75. So it's um, seven years after the Olympic Games in, my, in Mexico City. In 1968, there were there was no drug testing. There were no illegal drugs. Okay? And from the Olympic Village to the nearest pharmacy in Mexico City 
when I was there seven years later, the trail was still worn down <laughs> from, from all the athletes from the Olympic Village going to get whatever pharmaceuticals. <laughs> So that, that made an impression too, you know, because I'm a babe in the woods, I didn't know anything about drugs and sport or anything at that time. Uh, but other, but really, I mean, all my great experiences were when I was in Finland meeting all these great athletes, uh, and, and their coaches and the adventures that I had with them, um, that were, you know, just, and a lot of them were just a bunch of guys, you know, I, the second time that I went there, Jan Zalesny came there, and he wasn't there to compete. He was there just uh, to lead the parade uh, for starting the, the, the major competition on the last day of the carnival. Mm -hmm. So biggest window and door company in Finland flew him in just to be there for a press conference and to lead, like, be the drum major for this parade starting the carnival on, on that Sunday. So we're out again at the disco with the bad music and drinking. And the guy that owns this window and door company comes over and he grabs Jan Zalesny. He says, you're coming to my house for a private party. He goes and grabs Uwe Hahn. He says, you're coming to my house for a private party. Then he grabs me and says, you're coming to my house for a private party. And that's it. Nobody else but this guy and his designated driver. And I'm like, if I've gone, if I died and came to heaven, coming to Finland now, like I've ascended to a new level of right. being able to hang out with these guys. And, and I, I have no idea to this day why I got picked to go along with these guys. And I've met, you know, I've met Uwe before and we had some adventures that, you know, I might explain off camera sometime. <laughs> um, but, and, and honestly, Jan wanted to talk about fishing. He loves fishing and I was not going to, you know, we talked about a couple of things, javelin related, but primarily he wanted to talk about fishing in the United States. And he made me promise to send him a care package of fishing tackle. Which did you do that? Oh, of course, man. <laughs> yeah. When he asked for some fishing stuff, you send him some fishing stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. I know. And, but I will tell you that he, he called his shot at the world championships in 2001. We're sitting in the sauna and he looked at me and he said, you know, for one round, maybe two, I let them think they have a chance. And then, <laughs> and he does this little hand maneuver. You look at the video of the 2001 World Championships where he throws 92 meters on his second throw when he's walking around, walking back from the foul line. You'll see that little hand move. That's awesome. I mean, dude called the round. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's just a special type of athlete to be able to do that. Two months out. <laughs> Was, so it was actually like a party or I thought he was going to bring you back for some type of surprise training camp where he's ready to work, <laughs> work with the best people out there. Or what oh, was, no, I mean, we, 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 we were all above the legal alcohol limit. When he, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were just going out to eat good food, to keep drinking and tell stories and just have camaraderie. That's awesome. I mean, what a group to be, be in. <laughs> the, next, the next morning, the parade is starting like at 11 o'clock and Cody Ehlinen, who was the national javelin coach at the time and one of the guys running this thing he's calling everybody on the cell phones wondering where the hell we are because <laughs> at 10 o'clock the parade is starting an hour and we're about an hour's drive from where supposed to be, and nobody knows where anybody is yeah that's so it was like a dakar rally getting through the forest because this guy's house was in the forest it was a pretty good run to get back to town <laughs> yeah that's awesome all right, last question. You've been with so many throwers, met a bunch of them, obviously. Who would you say is your favorite thrower of all time and why? 
Oh man, it's, it's Giannis Lucis simply because, you know, he was my, my athletic idol all through my career. He was the guy that, uh, let's put it this way. He was so good when you're in sauna in Finland, uh, you know, you're in there and you're all together. You know, there's, you're not covering anything up. When I was in there with most of the guys from Finland, it looked like a convention of shark bite victims. Everybody's got semicircle scars on their shoulder or their elbow or their knee. Everybody's had some kind of surgery. A lot of guys had more than one surgery. Lucis, there ain't a scratch on that dude. Really? And, you know, my technique was so good, I didn't break anything. You know, and just, I mean, to, to have met him at such a, a young age, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're a baseball pitcher, this is getting to meet Nolan Ryan right after he dotted Robin Ventura's eyes. Right. Just, you know, I mean, it's, it's meeting your idol at the pinnacle of his career and this guy having the time to spend. With you. So beside the fact that I consider him the greatest thrower ever, the personal connection, it's, you know, it's hard to beat. Probably the next one would be Kate Schmidt. Okay. I, I think that's such a unique experience like you said to be not only idolize them but at 18 19 be able to sit down and ask the questions even if you didn't get enough follow-ups but to be able to have that experience is just probably oh god yeah man it's just it's a it was it was life-changing you know and and it it reinforced the idea of the event in the sport for me and it literally became my life either with coaching uh running the business selling track and field equipment because i had a, a reputation in the javelin world me selling javelins was you know people are gonna know this not this guy's not selling crap because his right. with my reputation is on the line if i'm putting out stuff so it had to be good quality so that being able to run that business out of the house while i was taking care of my wife while she was while she was injured you know all the stars aligned for the javelin to line up to, you know, give me a living because I really wasn't that into teaching. Uh, <laughs> spent a lot of years in the home building business when I got out of coaching and I, you know, and I ran a handy biz man business for a lot of time, but everything was always coming back to javelin. That's perfect. And that's something I think a lot of people in the sport, cause it's such a small group, but such a passionate group uh, would probably aspire to. So it's awesome uh, that you're able to support yourself with javelin. Yeah, and you gotta and you gotta find a way to make it work. I mean, it wasn't like it fell on my lap. Oh no, I had to develop the reputation by being a good coach, going out and finding quality implements at a good price, and 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 learning how to run a business. And thank God, my wife had been in in finance and banking and stuff, so she handled the financial stuff. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's just you have to pay the price. But you know, just like you talked about with when you again, you Liam, a guy that I go back with. Uh, when he talked about, you know, you go through all this, all the training, all the reps, all the frustration, all the injuries, but then you get that perfect throw. And it makes you realize all the work that you've done made it worth it just for that one instant. And, you know, it, it, it teaches you about life. So it, it, a lot of that mentality, a lot of that I'm going through the grind to get this one result really helped me with being able to take care of my wife, but still allow me to find the time and organize to be able to do the other thing that I love. You know, my family is number one, Javelin is number two. Right. Or 1A, 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> they're, you know, and it's, they're pretty interchangeable, man. And my family, you know, my, my wife knew that when she was alive, my kids know that. And you know, that's just part of who I am. <laughs> my kids are like, you know, who got, who else grew up having a watermelon fight with Brian Oldfield? Who else grew up doing barbecues with, with Raymond Hecht and Yuha Lauken and, and, and Michaelia Engberg? You know, it's just like they've, they've had the experience of growing up around great athletes and number one, realizing that superstars are real people. And also number two, realizing even the great people had to suffer and go through tough times and work hard to reach the level that they, that they achieved. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's just an amazing way to put it. Well, Jeff, I'm going to let you go to make sure you have time uh, for your meeting. But thanks so much for coming on. This is awesome. And yeah, part two, I'm definitely interested in that because I'm sure you got more stories for us. We could do eight, brother. <laughs> <laughs> this is really fun. And man, I really appreciate what you're doing for our sport. There need to be more folks like you that are getting out and, and rang, ringing the bell for throwing the javelin. I really appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. Yep, thank you. Keep you around, swear to God I'm not gonna switch on you